Let me tell you what this political movement is about. Jobs and growth for all Australians. Don jobs and growth. Have great jobs. Economic growth. Strong growth. More jobs. When they go low, we go high. So I'm seeing in my mind something very similar with this bill to a colonoscopy. Let me just stop you so you don't waste a line of questioning. I'm just giving you... I love the mansplaining. I would build a great wall, and nobody builds walls better than me, believe me. Please clap. Please clap. This is Represent. 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 On Sid Nation. Good afternoon. You're listening to to Represent on Sid Nation. I'm Oscar. I'm Ben. And I'm Maggie. On today's show, we'll be, talk- we'll be interviewing Felicity Marlowe from Rainbow Families about her High Court challenge against the Marriage Equality Survey. In light of Hurricane Harvey and with the floods in Bangladesh, India and Nepal, we'll also be discussing natural disasters, their political impact and how Western media overlooks disasters in developing nations. And of course, we'll be having Pop Chat where we'll be discussing the most interesting, bizarre and shocking stories of the week. But as always, we want to hear your thoughts. Send us a tweet at SinRepresent or follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash SinRepresent. But first, a song. This is Burning Down the House by Talking Heads. You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation. And that was Talking Heads Burning Down the House. And you're listening to the Represent on Sin Nation. We have Felicity Marlowe on the line. Hello, how are you going? Hi, Felicity. Lovely to be able to talk to you today. Um, so I'm Maggie and I'm here with Ben and Oscar. And I guess the first question that we've got for you, if that's all right, is if you could briefly outline your involvement with Rainbow Families and I guess the impact that organisation has on LGBTQ+. Australians. Sure, thanks for having me on. So, um, I'm part of an organisation called Rainbow Families Victoria and we represent um, anyone who is a parent or carer or prospective parent who identifies as lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, gender diverse, intersex or queer who might mm-hmm. have um, children mm-hmm. or thinking about having children. And so we were founded in 2006 and have done um, all sorts of different advocacy to change the law in Victoria for um, rainbow families and also we hold like social events and um, provide information and education to schools and early childhood centres as well. Awesome, awesome stuff. I guess a little bit more about um, what you guys are working on right now. I guess um, what do you think are the biggest reasons for why you think this marriage equality survey should not go ahead? Well. Um, Rainbow Families was involved in a trip up to Canberra last year with Rainbow Families from New South Wales and the ACT. And 27 kids, aged 6 to 16, went and spoke to a whole range of politicians. So it's in Victorian senators like Darren Hinch and Senator Janet Rice from the Greens. And we spoke to um, the Nick Xenophon team and also to a whole lot of ALP members of Parliament and senators as well. And the message the kids took is that they were worried that a public vote on marriage equality, and at that time it was a plebiscite with the voting gay, sort of like a sexual election, would mean that people would have um, the right to question and talk about the validity of their families and whether their families were normal, whether their parents were good parents, and whether or not um, they were okay as kids being raised by a 
LGBTI parents and carers. And that's because we knew from the impact on families and children during the Irish referendum in 2015 that people found it really distressing to have a public conversation that, although it was only about through a marriage, which is about two grown-ups making a decision to commit to each other legally through a marriage ceremony. The biggest argument used by people who were anti-marriage equality was that marriage equals family and that all children deserve a mother and a father. Mm -hmm. So we knew from the lessons in Ireland that the impact of a public campaign around a plebiscite would be really damaging to us. Family, yeah, and absolutely. we were managed to stop it last year, which is amazing. But unfortunately, it's um, now come back in the form of the postal website. So, once yeah. again, we're um, saying that we really need to stop it, that the damage done by any public campaign um, yeah. far outweighs the benefit of marriage equality at this point in time. Yeah, actually, on that point, um, we actually saw, I guess, an advert by the No campaign, which has caused sort of huge controversy, and I guess. Um, what do you think the impact that can be, I know you've already touched on it, but on like rainbow LGBTQ families and especially I guess the children and all of that? So um, one of the impacts of that kind of no campaign where it talks about essentially ties in curriculum to the introduction of marriage equality is that first of all that's completely false, like introducing marriage equality for two consenting adults who love each other to marry is not the same as oh. Um, nationwide reform of the curriculum, so they're two very separate issues. And secondly, um, the judgments that are made in those sort of no ads and in some of the discussion that the you know, campaign has come up with about um, people's gender expression and gender identity has been really harmful to lots of children and particularly gender diverse and trans young people and particularly ones that are, say, in primary school settings um, and secondary school settings where maybe they don't have much parent or carer or family support. So the LGBTI is growing up, but it's quite depressing to see that material, particularly if someone is a trans or gender-diverse parent themselves. Um, and to hear, for their kids to have to hear that kind of hate speech, it's really distressing. So I think that known ad from this week was just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, yeah, I guess um, another question that we wanted to ask you is, I guess um, we touched a little bit about, like, the, I guess, obvious negative aspects of um, the sort of postal um, sort of voting happening. Like, what, what do you think about, is there sort of any positives that you see? Like, for example, the Yes campaign bring together the community and... And, um, Not really, yeah. I know what you mean. Look, I mean, I think it's, unfortunately, there's going to be an eight-week campaign. Like, well, if we look at the steps that are happening in the next week, we've still got the High Court Challenge on Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday this week. So if all goes well, um, postal vote will get um, stopped by the High Court, to be amazing. But secondly, while we can put a lot of energy into a yes campaign for what will be about eight weeks, from the 12th of September when ballots start being sent out until the 7th of November. Mm -hmm. There is only two sitting weeks um, of federal government remaining at the end of the year. So we're only voting yes on a question, but on a piece of paper that's going to just be counted and reported back to government on November the 15th. Mm -hmm. We're not actually voting or putting any effort into a public discussion about the type of bill that would lead to legislating um, marriage equality. So... The only bill we've seen so far that sort of had any sort of gov come from government has been one by George Brandis, who's the Attorney General from last year, and then an earlier one that was 
played one which was more recently discussed, which was by a Liberal senator from Western Australia called Dean Smith. And these have quite a number of religious exemptions in them. So I think that we need to be very cautious as a community that while we might be able to vote yes and mobilise people to support the idea that people should um, be able to marry, that there's no certainty about the timing of any bill being passed through Parliament. And there's also no certainty about the type of marriage bill that might include religious exemptions in it. So there's too many unknowns, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm looking forward to a very robust yes campaign, but I do think it's an extremely dangerous and distressing thing that the community has to be put to. Awesome. Thank you so much, Felicity, for, I guess, sharing some of the, I guess, complication around this issue and um, sort of the awesome things that you're doing for it. I guess before um, we say goodbye, is there anything else that you want to add with us today here at Represent? Well, I think it's um, really fantastic that so many young people have enrolled to vote for the first time. I noticed that the Federal Electoral Commission said about 90 or two-thirds of new voters were aged 18 to 24, so... Even if we are able to throw the postal vote out through the High Court this week, and um, even if we end up having this vote on the postal vote with the funny little question about whether people can marry or not, um, the next week election is certainly going to be an interesting one with so many young people engaged. So I think that's been a really great effort from lots of young people to get, get themselves organised and get enrolled. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us about this issue, Felicity, and hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Good, have good afternoon. See ya. Thanks. And remember, if you would like to join us in the conversation, you can always tweet us at SinRepresent on Twitter or follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash SinRepresent. And now we have another song for you, David Bowie's Let's Dance. just heard Let's Dance by David Bowie. Represent assistant producer Julia Play spoke to Oxfam spokesman Dylan Winnell about the situation in Bangladesh, India and Nepal. Sure, so Julia, flooding in the, the area of South Asia is actually annual. It happens when the monsoon rains hit between July and September. What's just happened this year is that the rain has been a lot heavier than expected. In some cases there have been reports of areas getting as much as a month's worth of rain in only a couple of days. Um, and this has led to flooding that's a lot worse than the normal and people aren't prepared to, to respond to it. The other thing is that areas that aren't normally affected by the flooding have been in this case. So people who haven't been used to responding to floods are now affected as well. And what we're seeing, and the numbers are just very hard to understand from an Australian point of view, but it's 43 million people affected across Nepal, India and Bangladesh. And so far, the death toll is estimated to be about 1,200 people across those three countries. This week, we've also seen natural disasters in Texas. That was, of course, Hurricane Harvey, and a lot of the media attention has been on Hurricane Harvey and possibly to the expense of coverage in the situation in Bangladesh, India and Nepal. Do you think that Australians are out of touch or the Australian media is out of touch with with thinking about countries that are developing that also face really horrific um, natural disasters? 
Sure. Now, I think in some ways this is to be expected. I'd, I'd probably guess that most Australians are more likely to have been to visit, for example, the United States than they are to have visited India, Bangladesh and Nepal. So the fact that it's getting more media coverage makes a sense in some ways because people can identify more with what's going on over there. And we do also need to acknowledge that Hurricane Harvey is one of the biggest storms to ever hit the United States mm-hmm. and that there are many people that have been uh, affected or lost homes or potentially even lost friends and family members. At the same time, as you said, the government in the United States is obviously much more capable of responding to the hurricane and the flooding that it's created than potentially the governments in South Asia are. The other thing to note is that there are an extraordinary high number of people affected across India, Bangladesh and Nepal, so they'd be far greater than the number of people affected in the United States. So, look, we would applaud you for uh, talking about this issue and we'd like to think that Australians are interested in hearing about what's happening over there and how people are, are struggling and what they can do to help. So Oxfam staff in Bangladesh reported that at one point as much as two-thirds of the country was underwater. That water is slowly draining out of the ocean now, and I think we're looking at about one-third of the country still underwater. The other important thing to note is that although this has happened in the monsoon season, the flooding this year has been quite late, and many paddy fields would have actually been planted already. So one of the real concerns organisations like Oxfam have is that if people's food crops have been destroyed, we could also be looking at people struggling in a few months' time when it comes to harvest and they're not getting the food that they would normally be getting. And there may be a secondary crisis where essentially people need more food aid and support. Mm-hmm. Which is something that you wouldn't normally think about because you would think that just the immediate the immediate disaster would be the issue. Exactly. So I guess one other thing that organisations like Oxfam take into account is that obviously the way natural disasters like flooding affect people um, differs on who they are. So, for example, pregnant women or mothers have different needs to to people um, and we need to to talk to them about what their needs are. Um, There are other people that, for example, could be elderly or young that need more support. So this is something that we definitely take into account when working with them. Overall, across India, Bangladesh and Nepal, Oxfam's provided over 186,000 flooded people with, as I said, clean drinking water, food supplies, emergency shelter, hygiene kits and other items. As the crisis continues, because another important point to note is that the rain hasn't stopped just yet, so the flooding will potentially move and potentially even get worse in some areas. So as that continues to happen, we'll continue to support people where they need it most. Just one more point that that is actually probably worth raising similar to what you were asking is that communities in in many of the areas that have been affected by the flooding do actually rely on rain throughout the year to provide them with drinking water and farming. But this year, instead of having uh, rain that would would happen over a number of months, there have been these heavy bursts of rain which have actually caused the flooding and in many cases have destroyed their houses, farms or their way of living. Yeah. And is it that, and I'm a complete layman here, but is it that if you have a great deal of, and even not to monsoon level, but like a large level of rain at one point, accessing that water for drinking water, it might become contaminated? Is that Exactly. And that's one of the concerns that organisations like Oxfam have is that what we can see after flooding is not just the immediate effects of people being forced out of their homes, their homes being damaged or destroyed, and the same with their farmland, but that then we start to see the risk of waterborne diseases, so things like cholera, diarrhoea, sorry, as people are forced to, to live in and around dirty water that has been polluted by, for example, sewage or um, other contaminants. Yeah, and um, with that, but is that another secondary concern, like like the food shortages that could occur? Is that like another is, second wave of disaster? That's right, and it's something that organisations like Oxfam will be watching out for now as the, the 
worst of the flooding in some places does start to move on is that we don't start to see outbreaks of cholera or outbreaks of diarrhoea because people who are already weak after potentially not getting out of food or water because of the flood, they can be very susceptible to those sort of diseases. That's correct. So the health system in a country like the United States would obviously be a lot uh, higher capacity or a lot better than potentially the health systems in extremely rural or poor parts of India, Bangladesh and Nepal. So it means that if we started to see outbreaks of cholera or outbreaks of diarrhoea, people would potentially be able to get to hospital or health centres easier and they'd be able to, to have a better chance of treatment. So one of the concerns there is... The other problem you can find is that hospitals or health centres have actually been damaged by the flooding and therefore again, it makes it hard for people to get treatment. The final thing to note is that heavy monsoons and unpredictable weather are the types of um, effects we'd be expecting to see as climate change continues to worsen. Now one of the things we know about climate change is that it's, it's, it's likely to increase the occurrence of severe storms and the unpredictability of the weather. It is likely to hit the poorest people the worst. Um, and often the carbon footprint of these people is so much lower than for many of us like those who are sitting in Australia. And that was Julia Pillay, assistant producer, speaking to Dylan Quinnell from Oxfam about the situations. Now, if you want to join us in with the conversation, you can follow us on Twitter with at SYN Represent or on Facebook through facebook.com forward slash SYN represent. And now we're going to move on to talking about natural disasters and its influence with politics and media, especially with in the Western world. Yeah, I guess I'll just jump in here. I guess hearing a little bit about what Dylan had to say, it was, I guess, a bit shocking about how, I guess, this disparity in coverage compared to, you know, the situation in the US, which is, of course, incredibly devastating. But I guess um, the, I guess, human like lives at um i guess at stake in sort of um india nepal and bangladesh is on i guess completely a different scale and it's interesting how um that isn't as reported as much and dylan did touch on that a little bit about how i guess australia is more i guess culturally similar to america and then people here might have relatives there so there might be i guess more people that care a bit more but i'm just really interested in the idea of i guess is it okay and like for there to be this sort of hierarchy of suffering to exist where even though I guess the amount of lives being lost is a bit is disparity but there are people that um, we're expected to or we do care about more getting more coverage and getting more exposure through the media and probably getting more donations and um, help as a response uh, what do you guys think about that? Um, well I think it was interesting because I know there was a problem with that um, when there was with when it comes to terrorism because mm. a lot of smaller countries that are get that are having terrorist attacks aren't being talked about as much as larger countries that have terrorist attacks like France and mm. things like that for sure yeah we just noticed in especially in western media it's not highlighted as much that what happens in other countries that aren't so that aren't near us geology uh, uh, Geography-wise, they're not close to us, so they're not in our news that much. So that many of us don't realise what is in fact happening, and don't seem to worry or care as much as, say, Hurricane Harvey in the United States, where that is on our news, is on our televisions, and we're seeing the impacts of that happening, and we are caring about this. Mm. And it's so interesting how, um, even though I guess 
America is more geographically far away from us than, you know, some of the countries in Southeast Asia. It almost seems like um, Australian media treats countries in Southeast Asia as, like, the other side of the world, whereas America is just, um, I guess, like, our best friend, you know, they're just... Like right our next-door neighbour. Exactly, exactly. When geographically, that's not the case at all. And it's sort of, I guess, really interesting how, like, we've conceptualised this um, in the media. And I guess, yeah, like, on that note as well, it's sort of really interesting how, um, you know, like, the, the sort of, like, natural disaster, the implications of it doesn't really extend just then. It also, for people in Southeast Asia, it extends almost to the rest of the year, you know, with all the, I guess, possibilities of waterborne diseases and crops for the entire year being utterly destroyed. That's just Yeah, it was just... Many people considered the monsoon season over or just about over, mm. and no one predicted that there would be this much damage so they started planting their crops, preparing their livelihoods, but it's just been destroyed and devastated with all this damage that's been caused. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On a separate note, guys, the whole Melania Trump case with the high heels to visit Texas after Hurricane Harvey, lots of media coverage on that. Um, what are your opinions on that? Maybe getting more media coverage than the actual, um, I guess, devastation itself? My my question to that is that why is there so much news and coverage about someone? Yeah, there's an obsession over shoes someone's wearing. Why is that an issue? That doesn't need to be an issue for us to focus on or talk about at all, really. But yes, people have been talking about it, being like, shouldn't she done this? Should have she should have won this or that? But it's just becoming too much of an obsession now. Uh, I mean. And it's there's also been a lot of discussion about, I guess, politicians visiting the site of Hurricane Harvey in general because or areas affected because there's a lot of argument that when politicians and other people visit those sites, they take out resources from the local population. I feel like, I don't know, at least with the case of Melania, maybe there's just a lot of... I guess, distraction, you know, from the media and that sort of idea of, you know, what do the people actually want to hear about? It's, it's, I guess, pretty demoralising that, I guess, huge media industries believe that, you know, like, instead of the actual devastation and the consequences and impact after the disaster, would care more about, you know, her shoes. But the fact of the matter is, we do, like, you can see that it is what's being, you know, reappropriated in memes, um, there's heaps of, like, blog posts being put about it, there's just so much more attention on this than the actual disaster, and I don't know if that's just, like, um, us as a population fulfilling expectations once they've been set on us, or if, you know, it's the media sort of making these assumptions and yeah awesome so i guess that's all we have to say for now on this issue and if you have anything you want to add to this conversation please send us a suite to at sin represent or follow us on facebook at facebook.com forward slash sin and now we're going to be coming in with a song toto africa you're listening to sin nation Drums are going tonight 
She hears only whispers of some quiet conversation. You were, that was Africa by Toto. And when you're listening to Represent, we're now going to do Pop Chat. Awesome, and I guess I'll jump in first. Um, a bit of a local issue, Melbourne O-Bikes. So I guess a little bit of background if you haven't heard about it. Um, if you're seeing a lot of yellow bicycles scattered around the CBD, that is O-Bikes. It, was, um, it is a Singaporean company. They operate over there very successfully. And what's, I guess, very special about O-Bikes compared to, you know, the blue bikes that we've already got in Melbourne is that there are no specific docking bays that you need to take your bike to um, for your trip. So if you're just going to work, you can go on your phone, go on the app and see where the closest O-Bike is to you. Go there, book it, take it to work, and literally just park it outside your work. Um, There's no specific place you have to take it to, so I guess the benefit of that is less hassle. But of course, um, apparently people can't appreciate good things and are exploiting the system, uh, ranging from jokes, such as leaving um, leaving their bikes on portable loos, after using them, or um, on the more serious end, um, causing, I guess, even pollution in terms of leaving their bikes in the Yarra River, which I just can't understand. And um, it's pretty devastating in terms of the city of Melbourne has officially um, declared that if they see the bikes um, being placed anywhere illegally where it could be seen as rubbish or clutter, they're just going to remove it, and they're even considering possibly banning O-bikes in general, just used to due to people, like, literally leaving their bikes on trees, you know? So it's, um, I guess with O-bikes, it's had similar levels of success, which is not a lot, in Amsterdam and London, where it's been banned. And um, I just found it really interesting, like, why systems like this that are so successful in countries like Singapore completely and utterly failing in places like ours in Melbourne. And it's sort of, the company is saying it's an issue of education. It's just a teething issue that once we get used to it, maybe that, um, you know, that it'll um, be all smoothed out and we'll be able to use it properly. Or, um, I guess, people that are a bit more sceptical, like, maybe it's just human nature. In Melbourne, we just don't have, I guess, the culture, etc., to make that work. And I'm just going to kick it out to you guys also here. What do you think? Do you think this is something that could work in Melbourne or utterly lost cause? I mean, O-Bike doesn't purely exist in um the city of Melbourne. It also exists in other municipalities, so I think it's going to be interesting to see what what other municipalities choose to tackle the problem and whether we'll end up with a problem where O-Bike is allowed in some municipalities and is just not allowed in others. Today was the first time of me hearing about O-Bikes and personally I reckon it's an amazing idea and Mm -hmm. I'm actually excited to learn about it now. But again, I think it's the issue of just a couple people ruin it for Every, for the majority, yeah, that's so where right. it's just a few people being silly, being just dumping their bikes wherever, making a joke about it, mm. but they don't realise the damage they're causing, not only to the O-bikes themselves, but to other people within Melbourne wanting to use those bikes that find themselves that might not be allowed to anymore because of what they've done to them. Yeah, exactly, and just how Melbourne looks as a city in general as well. And just on that vein, like, if you research it, do you think, based on what you've heard, it's something that you would ever, you know, use yourself? Yeah, I definitely would, like, think about that now. I'm like, it seems relatively cheap because it's, like, just over a dollar for 30 minutes, and mm. it's 
a quick and easy way to get around the city if you're in a rurry, eh, in a rush and don't want to catch public transport. So it sounds like a fantastic idea. Mm, I guess, yeah. And if we have anyone on the air that's considering leaving their bike over back in a tree, we just have to say, please don't. And now I'm just going to um, pass pass it along to um, Ben over there, who I know has some interesting things to say about Matthew Guy and the Mafia. Yes, another Melbourne, uh, Victorian-based issue. Uh, we covered a couple of weeks back here on Represent, Matthew Guy meeting with an alleged Mafia boss for a lobster dinner. And... <laughs> A couple of days after that happened, Matthew Guy said he would refer himself to IBAP personally so they could conduct an investigation into the dinner and find that there was nothing to be found. But just a couple of days ago, IBAP turned around and released a statement saying that they wouldn't actually investigate these claims because the, the statement read in part, IBAP has determined the information does not fall under our jurisdiction. And that's basically the issue of... Because there was no... For IBAT to investigate anything, there needs to be evidence of a serious criminal offence that has been committed. Or corruption. Or, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, And since it was just rumours of a dinner and rumours of a conversation happening, IBAT doesn't have the full powers to investigate or to punish anyone so far. So that's brought up one of the numerous shortcomings that... IBAT has, and it's just interesting to see how what will happen now to Matthew Guy and his reputation, seeing as IBAT won't investigate this dinner. I, I, I mean, I think I think the I think it, IBAC doesn't really matter in the equation. I think Matthew Guy. The main thing is going to be is how it plays out in the court of public opinion. Mm. Yeah, of course, it's going to be interesting to see how or if the public's perception of Mr. Guy changes at all or. Uh, if it does, it will benefit or work to his disadvantage now. Mm. I mean, I don't know. I feel like the like his biggest supporters probably won't care. They'll just they can. I feel like they can write anything off. Like, oh, you know, like he couldn't have just walked out after seeing like he walked in or something like that would have been impolite. But on the other hand, I feel like it's more fuel to the fire for people that might not be you know as fond of him. Um, yeah, I don't know, though. Like, it's interesting that he would, even as such a big political figure, get himself involved in a situation where this could really, you know, impact his campaign. Or yeah, that. again, we don't know if he knew anything before going into dinner or if he had any background knowledge. And it's something that I find a bit interesting as well, that there was a lot of drama that blew up about a week after the dinner happened last month. But now it's died down and it hasn't really affected so much. Not many people are bringing it up now. Mm. And it's only this IBAT statement released earlier this week that's caused the um, news and media to play on it again. I mean, it does... I mean, as I said, I think it's going to play in the... I think it's going to be public opinion that mostly affects Matthew Guy, not what the authorities find or investigate. But I think what's... And because partly because of how he plays on the tough on crime, um, I guess policies, and you know he's meeting with uh, someone who is alleged to be a part of the mafia. Yeah, it's gone, yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how Matthew Guy plays this off when it pops up again. If he's just going to flat, because now that Ibat's not investigating, there's not much for him to stand on 
saying that he's been fully cleared because there's nothing because I bet said there's nothing too clear then there's nothing that uh, Matthew guy has to stand on with saying that he can back himself up with well yeah it's mostly all going to be hearsay from here on out about what they might have said and it's going to be back and forth so yeah yeah we truly we, we don't know what truly happened at that dinner we don't know the details of what was discussed, and nor do many people in Victoria, so it will be... Wildest imagination, what do you think they would have talked about? <laughs> oh, well, I remember there was a, there was a late conversation, wasn't there, about a phone call after the dinner saying mm. that they're not going to be carrying bags of money for donations. <laughs> so it's, again, it could have been any possibility they were talking to, what they were talking about, sorry. But, yeah, so it's... Craziest idea, though, probably would be finding a way to donate to the Liberal Party without their names attached to the money, which is an issue that affect, that will be of interest to any politician that's looking to solicit donations without the true donors being found out. But, um, sorry, just on another point. Um, I think I read something this week about that um, Malcolm Turnbull's going to introduce a law to prevent foreign donations. Yeah. I don't know much about that. That's it's. I believe it's one of the part of the whole campaign financing reform that be passed through Parliament. Again, like many countries around, like many democratic countries around the world, their campaign financing laws aren't that strong or well done. And especially in Australia, the past few years, even we've seen foreign nationals donate to. Australian political parties, but we don't know where that money's coming from or what that money's influencing. So that can lead into a whole other conversation about campaign financing and how well it should or shouldn't be regulated. Awesome. And so that is all we have time for this week. Thank you guys for listening. Make sure you stay tuned for Techno Crates that are coming on. We will be back next week, 3 to 4 p.m. on Sin Nation and streaming online on sin.org.au. Remember, you can catch up on past episodes by listening to our podcast on iTunes and Omni. And, of course, you can send in feedback to us through Twitter at sinrepresent on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash sinrepresent. Thanks also to assistant producer Julia Pillay. I'm Maggie. I'm Ben. I'm Oscar. And remember to stay Stay political. political.